If you have a Bible this morning, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. If not, I'll be reading them anyway. So just follow along. 1 Peter 3. Once in a while, I'm, I'm brought to a passage of Scripture that I don't look forward to studying or preaching. And I have to confess, that is what we're going to talk about today. So it's not too late. You can walk out if you need to. Let me read for you, beginning in verse number 12 of 1 Peter 3, and I'll tell you why in just a moment what, I'm, what concerns me. In 1 Peter 3, uh, beginning in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, Whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it's better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. If you have lived a life that has taken you to adulthood, then what we experienced going through COVID shook you a little bit. And for some of us older folks, it shook us quite a bit because we had never been through something that shut the whole world down. Something that, that, that went around the world and caused global impact. Now, now we, thought, we thought we had troubles before COVID hit. We had prayer requests, and every, every week people would say, hey, listen, pray for so-and-so, and pray for this, and pray for this. But our lives intensified greatly as a result of COVID. Political pressures. All of a sudden, though it had been out there and though Christianity had been, a bit, been attacked, all of a sudden the Enemy forces just unleashed an attack against anything godly. 
I've always struggled with the verse that says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Because I don't want to be persecuted. <laughs> but I want to live godly, so I've got a problem here. I, I can choose to live an ungodly life and apparently not get persecuted. Or I can choose to live a godly life and along with that godly life, experience some form of persecution. Now, I think as a, a general principle, I don't believe that everybody who lives a godly life is going to always experience it. I, I don't, but it's a general application. And as you look back through the history, you pretty much see that, that, that people groups who stood up for Jesus and for good and for righteousness sake throughout history have been the receivers of persecution. But something has changed in our country. Because of the freedoms that we've enjoyed, Christians have not only not generically experienced persecutions, but we've pretty much been the one to call the shots. Christians have had a great voice in, in, in political ventures until recently. But there's been a change. We're watching our country turn into a different country. Now, I don't know what this all means. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but as we're studying on Sunday evenings with the end times being perilous times, and with there being so many evidences of the fact that we're living in the last days, it shouldn't surprise us that Christianity is being attacked in a more intense way. Now, I'm not a doomsayer, and quite frankly, I don't stay up nights worrying about it. But God, in His foresight, saw a purpose for teaching us about surviving during persecution. And so what I'm going to share with you is what God gave to us through Peter in his teaching on persecution. Now perhaps this is going to be nothing more than just an intellectual exercise for you that you can walk away and say, okay, 50 years from now when we get persecuted, I'll know how to do it. And persecution may never come to you, In fact, but it's great. But just in case it does, he said, let's be prepared. So I'm going to pray and I'm ask God to give us His insights today and to better prepare us. So we're not either always walking on eggshells wondering, is this the day? Is this the day? Do I have to fear? Not walking in that way. Adversely, not walking through life so passively that we're not keeping our eyes open to the times. And so let's bow for prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this portion of Scripture. We're going to need your spirit to instruct us today and to give us your mind. I believe your spirit enjoys teaching us your word. So would you please, Spirit of God, soften our hearts, quicken our minds, soften our uh, spirit so that we can be prepared for what you're going to teach us. And I pray ultimately, Lord, we will know what you want us to do, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at um, 
verse number 12, for the eyes, in 1 Peter 3, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now notice verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? So if you are a follower of good or a follower of God, you're serving him, you're praying, you are living your life righteously. Who can harm you, he said? Who can harm you? The ears are open unto the prayers of the righteous, he said. The face of the Lord is against those that do evil. So if you're walking a life that's pleasing God, he says you're on good ground. Here's the general principle being taught here. We live with all the promises of God's watch care and protection as long as we're living righteously. Isn't that great? So as long as you're living a righteous life, I don't mean perfect, but I mean you're doing your best by God's grace to please Him, and you're developing a relationship with Him, and you're not off into gross sin. You're in the Bible. You're studying it. You're doing your best to please your God. Then you've got access to all of His promises. His watch care is protection for you. He says, Who is he that will harm you if ye be followers? Well, the word followers here is where we get the English word mimic. We mimic that which is good. So we live our lives reflecting goodness, that which is good. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Psalm 4, 8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell safely. Psalm 91, verse 9 and following, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. So what I've just described for you in these couple of verses of 1 Peter is the protection principle. God watches over you. And it talks about him putting an angel over you, a guardian angel, if you will, to watch over you. And I am so glad that I have a guardian angel over me because there's so many times where I have come close in traffic. I think for some of you, your guardian angel is really breathing heavily. They're wishing you'd calm down a little bit. Slow down in your driving. A protection principle. You live for God, he says, I'm going to protect you. It's a good principle. I like that. It makes sense. Live for God. I'm going to protect you. You don't live for God. Expect, expect things to go bad. I can go with that. I can live with that. My kids understood that when they were very young. But Peter throws a curveball. Notice in verse number 14, but, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now, wait a minute. I got a problem. In the first two verses, I was under the impression, as long as I'm living well, I'm following God. He's my God. I'm serving Him. I'm going to be protected. But Peter says, well, but, but, and if, 
you suffer. That's not what I want. I want a principle, a protection, a promise from God saying, okay, you live good, you're going to be protected. That's what I want, Lord. Show me in your word. No matter what goes on, I'm going to be protected. Show me that. Because I don't want persecuted. But, and if, you suffer. Now, this is interesting. I looked it up. The, the grammar here is really, really instructive. But and if. Well, but is a logical contrastive. It means, let's stop and consider a reasonable exception to this. Let's just stop and think for just a moment. Does this mean that no matter what, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you? You're never going to stub your toe. You're never going to overdraw at the bank. You're never going to flat tire. You're never going to get a fever. Is that what this means? He said, now wait a minute, let's, let's logically think this. But, because if presents the possibility of actual harm coming to the follower of right. So those are the two little conjunctions, the but and if. They, they say, it, they, but if it does happen, if it does happen, if you do, he said, I've got some instruction for you. He says, be confident in your suffering. In other words, even if you're living right, you might have to suffer, but you can find confidence that it is to be used for his glory. Now, at first glance, and for the immature, it seems like there's a contradiction here. It seems on the one hand, God says, if you live right, you're going to be protected. Peter says, but you've got to understand. you got to understand. Things are going to happen in your life, and God is going to allow them. But what God allows, he wants to be for his glory. But I found something interesting looking at the grammar. It says, happy are ye. Happy are ye. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And here's what was surprising to me. This is actually an adjective describing the condition of the one suffering. What it means is the one over here going through whatever suffering they're going through, call it persecution. They're described as being happy. It's not an encouragement to now you be happy. You need to be happy. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you are going through this persecution, you are happy. Another problem. That doesn't make sense. I don't like hurting, and I don't think you would do either. I don't like being persecuted, and you won't either. What do you mean, happy? Well, let's go back to a foundational truth. God makes no mistakes, and God's word is true. I may struggle understanding it, but God's word is true. So let's go to that foundation, all right? So he says, you will be happy. Peter declares that if we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be happy or richly blessed. Verse 14. He says, but be not afraid of their terror. Now again, this is, I had a ball studying this in the, at the grammar here because it literally means don't fear their fear. Huh? 
don't fear their fear, or don't fear that terror associated with suffering. If, if you expect some suffering to be in your future, he says, don't worry about that, don't fear that. So let's just say you got a toothache, and you find out you're going to have a root canal. How exciting. You look forward to that tooth canal? <laughs> you're crazy. <laughs> you say, oh, I can't wait to have my, my face drilled on and me fail. I can't wait for that. No, some of you are saying, root canal, oh, my goodness. When we know something is going to happen in the future, typically, where we're going to involve pain, we don't look forward to it. We sometimes fear it. But he says, don't do that. Don't fear the terror associated with your suffering. Be not afraid of their terror. Isaiah 41.10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Yeah, but, but Lord, don't you see what I'm about to go through? Don't you see that? That makes me nervous. Thinking about those fearful, those painful things makes me nervous. Don't be afraid. Because I'm going to be with you. Again, he says, be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Troubled. This is the word where we get the word agitated or you know what, you know what water roiling is? It's when you put the, the water on the, on the, uh, the burner, and, and it hasn't started boiling yet. But it's just the water starting to move because of the heat there. It's not, not boiling. It's roiling. This is the word. Agitated. Neither be agitated or begin to be worked up. In Matthew 5, 10 and following, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And I have to admit that there are times where I thought somebody was smoking something to write this kind of truth. Rejoice when being persecuted? You've got to be kidding. When they're saying horrible things about us, we're supposed to rejoice? He says, don't get worked up over your suffering. Neither be troubled, agitated. Don't get ready to boil over this. So we begin with the principle of protection. And then we go to the possibility of persecution. Why would God allow us, if you're following God, if you're living a life that's pleasing Him, being faithful in your relationship with Him, why would God allow somebody so righteous to suffer? Seems contradictory. You would think that the righteous folks, the ones that are pleasing God, would be the ones He would protect from any kind of hurt. Well, let's just take a quick look at the example set by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Has any human being ever lived a more righteous life than Jesus? Well, of course no. Jesus was perfect. 
perfectly righteous and pleasing his father in everything he said and did and thought. And yet, Jesus suffered persecution. Huh. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So we see the protection principle, we see the possibility of persecution, and then, interestingly, in verse number 15, we see the prospect of preaching. Let me show you. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Again, the word but, this little conjunction here, is a logical contrastive. Don't get set back by it. It simply means, let's stop and consider a reasonable exception. But, let's think about it. He says, just stop and think. Reasonably, what would this mean? But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give an answer. Well, first of all, he talks about the heart. He says, let's start with the heart. What kind of condition is your heart in? When persecution, troubles, trials comes your way, what is your heart condition? Well, I don't mean you got high blood pressure. I mean your spiritual heart. Are you getting bitter at God? God could have kept this from happening, but he allowed it. God made a mistake on my part. What kind of a condition is your heart in? He says, first of all, sanctify the Lord God. Interesting thing to be told, you're supposed to sanctify God. How can I sanctify God? He's already sanctified. Well, the word here, sanctify, literally means to make holy, purified, hallowed. Hallowed be thy name, same word. It means in your heart, make sure you're still thinking that God is holy. Not that he made a mistake. Not that he messed up in your case, but he's still holy and righteous. Basically, deal with your heart before it becomes a problem. When persecution comes your way, and when problems come your way, when trials come your way, and all of a sudden your life gets turned upside down, watch your heart's condition, he said. Hebrews 12, 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Looking diligently, watch out. Watch out when the troubles come, lest any type of root of bitterness sprout up because of your distrust for God and Him allowing that suffering. Remind yourself that God is holy. And remember that unbelief is the enemy of sanctification. Unbelief, refusing to believe God. Numbers 20 and verse 11 and Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the beasts also. Sounds good, right? Well, not so. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land, which I have given you. See, God told Moses in this occurrence to speak to the rock. 
And because he was so angry at them for their rebellion, he took that rod and he beat on it twice. And God says, you did not sanctify me. Your anger did not represent me. You told them that I'm not a holy God because you did not obey me. In other words, instead of getting all worked up and fearful over your suffering, elevate God in your heart and consider his holiness and be ready to share your hope in Christ with others. Which leads us to <laughs> prepare to testify during suffering. Prepare to tell others how you're getting through the suffering. Prepare to tell others why you're not collapsing, why you're not getting angry, why you're not getting depressed and discouraged. Prepare to tell others. A heart being tested that remains tender toward God is ready and prepared to be a strong witness for God. He says, be ready always. Again, this is an adjective phrase. It's describing the one truly making God look holy and righteous. So let's just say trouble comes your way. Trials come your way. Persecution comes your way. And your first response is to cut and run, but by God's grace, you trust him and do not get angry. Do not get all worried. You just choose to trust God through it. He says, be ready always to make God look holy and righteous, and to give an answer. The word answer here is the word from where we get the word apologetics, or a defense of the faith. In other words, be prepared to defend why you can endure suffering without getting bitter. How can you? How in the world can you go through suffering when the neighbors all fall apart? My goodness, if what happened to you happened to them, they'd all be in the hospital. But you're getting through it. How are you getting through it? Tell me how you're getting through it. Let me tell you, the only way I'm getting through this is by cause of God's grace, God's strength. There's my testifying to God's goodness. He's a holy and righteous God, makes no mistakes, but look what he did to you. Look how he's helping me through this. Prepare to testify during suffering. He says in Hebrews 6.19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that which it within the veil. He says, keep the faith. We have hope as an anchor. He anchors us. Our faith in God anchors us so when the winds of adversity blow, oh, we're going to go blown away. Instead, we stay anchored in our faith and trust in Almighty God. Keep the faith, that hope that is in you. And don't allow pride to sneak in. Oh, it's deceptive. In the middle of a trial, we could look back and say, look what I'm doing. I'm holding on. Look at this. I'm not getting blown away. Look what I'm doing. There's the pride. You're not doing it. God's doing it through you. Watch out. Don't allow pride to sneak in. James 4, 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And then 
this is with meekness, and fear, or keep your awe and respect for God. Because some of you have experienced this. When hard times come, we sometimes doubt God. We lose our trust in Him. Because He could have prevented it, but He allowed me to go through this trial, so I'm no longer able to trust Him like I was. I used to think that God was so perfect and so holy, but I'm starting to wonder now. See, no. Keep your awe and respect. That, that reverential fear he describes here. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. As we look at Paul's life, we see the more he experienced persecution, the more he testified. He'd go into this village and they'd, they'd throw rocks at him. and Instead of quitting, he went to the next village and preached even stronger. He went to one village and they stoned him and left him as dead, only to come back to that same village a couple days later and preach once again. What's wrong with that guy? Got hit in the head with one too many rocks, I think. Or, or he chose to believe and have faith in his God. Keep your awe and respect for God. We see in verse number 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Another interesting concept here. Here we see the protection of purity. There's a prerequisite, you see, for persecution. If you're going to go through it the way God wants you to, he said you've got to have a good conscience. If you're going to go through persecution the way I want you to, responding the way you need to, giving me the glory, you need to have a good conscience. Verse 16, having a good conscience. Because you may have somebody say something really bad about you. They may accuse you of some things you didn't do. They may lie about you or to you. But if you have a good conscience, so that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, notice, then they may be ashamed. So as we walk through this, we're going to see the prerequisite for persecution is to not be filled with bitterness. To not be empty in unbelief. To not be worked up or agitated in my spirit. And not losing my awe and respect for God. The protection of purity, of a good conscience. He talks about my conversation. Now, today we say the word conversation, and we mean two people speaking back and forth. But in the old English usage, it means a, the way a person would live his life, his lifestyle. A person's conversation would be how they live their life. So he says, your good conversation in Christ. You know, your conversation or your lifestyle should be one of good behavior and good conduct. James 3.13, who's a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation 
lifestyle, his works with meekness of wisdom. Your behavior is powerful. How you live your life is very powerful. And if you have a concern for somebody's eternal soul, one of the first things they're going to look at is your behavior. Who are you to tell me about eternity? I know how you live. I know your life. I know what you do, and you're trying to tell me about eternity? See, a good conscience. The protection here of purity. God, good behavior is powerful. And interestingly enough, he says it brings eventual shame to your accusers. Those who wrongfully accuse you of evil end up being shamed themselves. Titus 2, verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. In other words, God has the last word. They may be something horrible, saying about, something horrible about you today, but don't let that get you down. Because God's got this. God's got this, and in his timing, they're going to be ashamed. Oh, but pastor, it's been weeks. Interesting thing about God. He's not on our timetable. His timing is perfect. Verse 17, I see a problem. Again, the problem of persecution. Verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. In other words, just because you suffer doesn't mean I'm going to please with you because if you go out and rob a bank and end up in prison suffering, that's your fault. I'm not going to be pleased with that suffering. Suffering is not exclusive to wrongdoing. A person living a wicked life can suffer. But he's saying a person living a righteous life can suffer as well. That's what he's saying. Sometimes God's will includes suffering in the life of a righteous believer for purposes that only God knows but for his glory. Remember Job? And Job in the Bible? God said to Satan, he said, take a look at my servant Job. He is exceptional. He's a righteous man. He escheweth evil. He shuns it. He runs away from evil. Oh, he was so pleased with Job. And Satan said, the only reason he serves you is because you bless him so abundantly. abundantly. God said, all right, let's prove it. I'm going to stop blessing him. Have at him. And the book of Job is all of Job's wealth. All of his possessions are taken away from him. His health is taken away. Even the support of his wife is taken away. And in the ash heap, three friends come to encourage him, but turn into accusers instead. Could it be any worse for Job? But the end of the Job's life is one of incredible blessing because God revealed that he had a greater plan for Job's life, one in which the end would be so much greater. Think Job, think Ezekiel. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 24, 15, And also the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, behold, 
I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes, his wife, with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead. Bind the tire of thine head upon thee, and put on thy shoes upon thy feet, and cover not thy lips, and eat not the bread of men. God was so desirous that his people would wake up from their spiritual death that he used the man of God, the prophet of God, as a graphic illustration. And he told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, this night your wife is going to die. But tomorrow morning, there's not going to be a tear in your eye. Instead, you're going to go and preach. You're going to preach what I tell you. And he did that. The problem of persecution. Think about Jesus. In Isaiah 53 and verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The Lord, who lived a righteous, pure, and holy life, was persecuted beyond belief. Romans 8, 28, And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God's got a bigger plan. In 1 Peter 2.19, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well, ye suffer for it and take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Lastly, we see the prince of persecution. And of course, this is Jesus, the prince. In verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. You see, Christ died for our sins once, only once. He went to the cross, was nailed there, and lost his life. He gave his life one time. Hebrews 10, 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. One sacrifice had to be offered. It was a pure and righteous and holy sacrifice. It was Jesus. Christ was holy and just and died for the unholy and unjust. In 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Romans 4.25, who was delivered for our offenses, was raised again for our justification. And Jesus died to reconcile us back to God. Ephesians 2.16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He brought us back to God. Sin had offended God. Jesus on the cross paid for man's sins and provided a reconciliation for man and God. And Christ did actually die in the flesh. No, he wasn't what some people say, swooning. He was 100% dead physically. 
1 Peter 4, 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. And then Christ was made alive in the Spirit, Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. In verse number 19, he gives us a truth that is misunderstood by many. And I'm not going to say that I hold all truth here, but my understanding of what's being taught here is this, verse 19, by which also he, Jesus, went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So Jesus died on the cross. What happened when Jesus died? Well, here it says he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. This seems to describe what Jesus did during his three days and three nights in the tomb. He went into the holding place of the Old Testament saints, those who were saved in the Old Testament, a place the Bible calls paradise. He preached to them and then led them to their new home in heaven, their new heaven. Ephesians 4, 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity, those in paradise, captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first to the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended us up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse number 20. If you're not confused enough, verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. We know that Noah's family, though they invited all the rest, only Noah and his immediate family were on the ark. Only eight souls were saved by water. Jesus' persistence for only eight souls. The world in Noah's day was wicked and perverse. It was so bad that God said, I'm going to destroy it. Now, it's hard for me to conceive that the world then was any worse than it is today. But God said, I'm going to destroy the world. It had gotten so perverted that he patiently waited 120 years. He came to Noah and said, Noah, I'm going to have you build an ark. You build an ark, I'm going to save you with that ark. But it took Noah 120 years to build that ark. Why? Partly because he was not doing it full time. He was also preaching. He was preaching to whoever would listen that judgment's coming. God told me to build an ark because judgment's coming. You need to trust God because judgment's coming. And they should have trusted God. But they wanted instead to live their wicked lifestyles. After those 120 years, the ark was done. There was a clap of thunder. The rains began. And Noah and his family were safe in the ark. Undoubtedly, 
as the water started to rise, there were people beating on the outside of the ark, crying to get in. But by then it was too late. In Genesis 7, 12, And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And the selfsame day entered Noah, and Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with them in the ark. He preached. He tried to win people to God. But they wouldn't listen. Verse 21, The like figure, Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, there's been so much misconception of this verse. And it, it clears itself up in the verse. It's called a like figure. The like figure. It's a picture where baptism saves. So they say right there, it proves, or proves it, you've got to get baptized to be saved. That's not what it says. It says the like picture. Like picture. The picture's not the real thing. Any more than if I were to scare you with a picture of my driver's license, that's not the real thing. I'm the real thing. That's a picture. You say, well, they're the same. Okay, well, you set that driver's license behind the steering wheel of my car and then stand back and watch that driver's license drive my car. Same thing, right? No. I'm the real thing. It's a picture. Notice how he goes on here. He said, um, the like figure or similar picture is that it is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We testify through baptism that we have by faith trusted in Christ. It's a picture. Baptism doesn't save. It pictures. Every time I baptize somebody, we go through that. Especially the younger they are, we clarify it. Understand, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Baptism. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It pictures Christ's death as the person stands in the water. As I put them under the water, it pictures his death. As I bring them back, it pictures resurrection. Pictures! It's a picture. It testifies of what happened earlier. What he says here, the like picture. And he even says it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. In other words, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't put away the filth. Salvation does that. Acts 8, verse 36. As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. What had to happen first, baptism or belief? The belief. He got saved first. Then he was baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. Salvation first. Then baptism. The like picture, he says here. And then, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. You see, Jesus' persecution resulted in his exaltation. Because Jesus suffered and died for the sins of mankind, God the Father highly exalted him. 
Ephesians 1.20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places and many other places, lifting Jesus Christ up. Why? Because of what he did in his persecution for the sins of mankind. So I'll go back to the beginning. Pondering persecution. I don't know to what degree Christians around here are going to have to suffer. I don't know if they're going to come and shut us down for some reason. I don't know what the future holds. But we're told today that if persecution comes, God's got a reason for it. And as we are persecuted for Christ, it is setting us on a stage so that we can testify of God's goodness. It's goodness. It's goodness, but you're being persecuted. That's the whole point. I'm being persecuted, and isn't God good? God's faithful. I can trust Him. And the only thing getting me through this is God's grace. He's righteous and holy. And about that time, you'll be reminded that your life, your life span here is very limited. It's but a vapor. And the only chance you have of testifying for Christ is right now. And so as you stand on that stage, the stage of persecution, thank God. Because he's giving you an opportunity to preach in a way that you could no otherwise do. Persecution for the glory of God. Let's pray. I thank you, dear Lord, for your love. And I thank you for this teaching. It's some hard teaching, Lord. So, Spirit of God, once again, I'm asking you to do the work in us, helping us to understand what we need from this truth. We're not asking for persecution. We don't want persecution. What we want is you truly glorified. And we want many, many people to come to know you as their personal Savior. So, Lord, if persecution does come, then would you help us to live our lives with a pure conscience and help us to boldly testify of your goodness. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. Has the Spirit of God spoken to your heart this morning? Have you been holding back, unwilling to trust God for fear of what might happen? Well, that's a foolish thing to do. You can trust God. You can trust him because his ways are best. And he said those who are going to suffer for righteousness sake are going to be happy. I know it makes no sense, but it's true. And perhaps you came in this morning not even knowing for sure that heaven is your home when you die. If you do not know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die, then I've got some good news for you. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind. And from us, he asks that we confess that we're sinners. That we recognize that we are sinners. And it's impossible for us to go to heaven apart from him. And so you come to Jesus and you confess that you're a sinner. And you ask him to forgive you. And you trust him and him alone to save you. Oh, if you've never trusted Jesus, I would encourage you to right now. He wants to save you. 
I wonder with nobody looking around, is there anyone this morning that would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I don't know for sure, but I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven. Who would say, Pastor, pray for me this morning? Anyone? Dear Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for your love, and thank you for this reminder for us to be prepared if persecution comes. You're a great God, and we thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.